Good morning, ladies. Wanted to remind you that on March 22nd, we are going to be starting the lessons on Jonah. So this would be a great time for you to invite friends. Uh, so be thinking about who you can invite. Uh, we move into chapter 19 of John. And I can't start this chapter with a funny story. There is nothing funny in this chapter. Our culture looks at a cross differently than a person living in biblical times. To them, a cross was a shameful form of execution for criminals. It was perfected by the Romans to punish and deter rebellion. Today, we wear gold and silver and diamond crosses around our necks, and I'm not condemning that. I do, too. And it can be an icebreaker when you see someone wearing a cross. What does that cross mean to you? It can be a useful reminder of what Christ did for me, as well as telling the world around me just who I belong to. But there is nothing magical about a cross. It will not ward off evil any more than any other object. It's just a lifeless object with no inherent power. The power of the cross of Jesus was found in the Father who sent his Son. It's interesting, none of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion describe details. We have probably all heard what would happen to the body, the medical description of the effects, how the person would suffer. But the gospel does not try to pull at our heartstrings. They do not describe the horror, the excruciating pain. So neither am I. I am going to show a short video at the end that is a producer's rendition of what may occur. And I only show it to remind you of what Jesus willingly experienced. It came at a cost to him so that we would not have to pay the cost. So let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we not take lightly what you did for us, what you did through your Son. I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning and let us follow you with our whole hearts. And may we always glorify you in our words and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. The events of John 19 took place in the early morning hours on Friday, the day after Passover. Jerusalem was still asleep and possibly oblivious to what was taking place. When John referred to the Jews here, it was the Jewish leaders they were the ones that wanted to get rid of Jesus. These are not the pilgrims who hailed him when he rode into town at the beginning of the week. John 18 ended with Jesus before the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate told the Jews he didn't find Jesus guilty. So we travel from the Garden of Gethsemane, which means an oil press, to Gabbatha, the pavement of stones, to Golgotha, which means skull. Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. In the 1800s, in a Boston newspaper, was the following. Relieve misfortune quickly. 
A man is like an egg. The longer he is kept in hot water, the harder he is when taken out. And this describes the condition of Pilate. He was determined to keep peace at any price, even if he ignored his conscience. The longer he was entangled with Jesus, the harder he got. If Jesus was innocent of all charges, then Pilate should have set him free. Instead, he began a series of compromising moves to avoid dealing with an inconvenient truth in a difficult circumstance. Every time he escalated the situation, his conscience was hardened a little more. Pilate tried to pass the responsibility of this judgment onto the Jews, but they were not having it. They pointed to a law in Leviticus 24 in which God commanded, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The Jews did not want to stone him. They wanted Pilate to take care of him. They wanted him to bear the responsibility of killing Jesus. So Pilate had Jesus flogged. Flogging was a precursor to crucifixion with the result of weakening the criminal. Often men did not even survive the flogging. Pilate may have hoped the flogging would satisfy the Jews, that Jesus had been punished enough. Even the flogging was painful beyond our understanding. So why did Jesus have to face this in addition to the crucifixion? Because it was prophesied. Isaiah 56, chapter 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out their beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. And these were not little rosebush thorns. Do you remember the first time we see thorns in the Bible? Genesis 3. When Adam sinned, the ground was cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns were a direct result of man's original sin and are found in abundance in a world steeped in sin. What the soldiers did unwittingly was hugely significant. There is nothing random in the Bible. Every word written in its pages is significant. The crown of thorns vividly symbolized the curse of sin being placed on Jesus' head. He wore a crown of thorns so that we someday may wear a crown of glory. 1 Peter 5.4 And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. They mocked Jesus by putting kingly colors on him. If you remember from studying the tabernacle in the Old Testament, Purple and scarlet were all over the tabernacle, the temple, the high priest's garments. Jesus deserved to wear a kingly robe. Revelation 19 tells us when he returns, he will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Once again, Pilate declared he found no guilt in Jesus. He did not have a backbone to stand up to the Jewish leaders and let Jesus go. Are we all guilty of the same we want to stand up for Jesus, and when we realize there may be a cost to us, we remain silent. How easy it is to slip into the same weakness the pilot showed. 
It's so ironic, the pilot said. Behold, the man. I think he was being sarcastic, implying, can such a fellow pose a threat? He is harmless. Once again, God used the mouth of a heathen to speak truth. Jesus is indeed the man. He dealt with the sin Adam introduced to the world. The Old Testament speaks of the branch that will be beautiful and glorious. Zechariah 6.12 says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. This is a prophecy of the future when the Messiah, who will rebuild the future temple, will be both priest and king. He is the man the Old Testament looked forward to. Verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The Jewish leaders started to act with a mob mentality. How often do we see that on the news? Well, one person starts a chant and then all join in. Well, here the chant was, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate was revealed as a cowardly, compromising man who was preserving his own skin. Pilate thought he was in a position of power when he was simply a pawn. God is always on the throne. Everything goes according to his plan. The Jewish leaders should have been men of truth and integrity. And instead, we find they are schemers who are willing to commit murder to protect their own interests. Pilate once again declared he found no guilt in Jesus. I think it is interesting if you compare the Gospels, the Jews charged Jesus with seven indictments. One, threatening to destroy the temple. Two, with being a criminal. Three, with misleading our nation. Four, with forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Five, with stirring up all the people. Six, with saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And seven, with making himself the son of God. This sevenfold indictment witnessed the completeness of their rejection of him. When you see a set of seven things in scripture, think completeness, fullness, and we'll talk more about sevens in a few minutes. It said, he made himself the son of God, and this is a charge of blasphemy. The penalty for blasphemy was stoning. The problem was the Jews had tried to stone Jesus several times, and he kept evading them, so they ramped it up. The Old Testament prophesies Jesus would die by crucifixion. Pilate's wife had warned him not to get involved in this whole Jesus affair. She had a dream that upset her and declared him a righteous man. Isn't that interesting? Well, now Pilate is getting spooked. 
And as a superstitious pagan, it was common to think gods could visit the earth. If you treated them nicely, they would look on you with favor. But if you mistreated them, they could wreak havoc, havoc on you. Pilate had asked where Jesus was from. Maybe he was thinking Jesus was a god from far off and he didn't want to be mistreating a god. So how did Jesus react to false accusation? With silence. He stood there facing injustice and hatred and didn't retaliate. He told Pilate he had no authority except what was given from God above. He said, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Well, the word translated as delivered over can also have the meaning of betrayed. So I think there are multiple meanings here. Judas betrayed Jesus and delivered him over. The Jewish nation delivered Jesus, Acts 3, 13 to 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So also Caiaphas, the high priest, had delivered Jesus to Pilate. So who is accused of committing the greater sin? I don't know. All of them are guilty before God, as are we. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate didn't want innocent blood on his hands, but he didn't want to let a criminal go free either. He tried to release Jesus, but the Jews tracked him in a corner. Pilate would be unable to defend himself later if Jesus turned out to be a revolutionary. He knew he could lose his job or his life. To do the right thing would have cost him. Have you ever had a blinking light on your dashboard that says check engine? Often people see it and ignore it. Eventually they don't even notice it anymore and one day their engine shuts down. The same is true with our conscience. Anytime you compromise your integrity to follow the world, your conscience blinks and says you shouldn't be doing this. But if you don't fix the underlying problem, it keeps blinking for a while. If you keep ignoring it and doing what you know to be wrong, your conscience becomes insensitive to sin. And that is a fearful position to be in when you can no longer determine right from wrong. Your life will go off the rails. Pilate was ignoring the check engine light. He should have stood up for right, but didn't. He sat down on the judgment seat and brought Jesus out. He said to the Jews, behold your king. 
chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus was not their king as he should have been. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, but now they were guilty of the same. They denied their true king. Their king was standing before them, but one day all of them will be standing for Jesus as he sits on the judgment seat. That will be a fearful day. Jesus is the king of kings, regardless of what you decide. He will have his way, whether you choose to get on board or not. How you respond to him will determine whether you go to heaven or spend eternity in hell. Verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. At least Pilate showed a little courage here. Often in art, a skull is a symbol of death. It is interesting, Jesus was taken to the place of a skull for the Father to take care of the problem of sin and death. There were two other men, one on each side. John doesn't tell us about Jesus' interaction with them, but Luke records one of them said, Save yourself and save us. The other said, Do you not fear God? We're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus told the second man, Today you will be with me in paradise. These two men are also a symbolic picture one had the response of rejection and the other of acceptance. Those are the only two options man has. To ignore him is rejection. God is gracious and compassionate, and those who wish to know him will find him. A response is needed. Intellectual assent is not enough. There must be a personal relationship. John gave a very short description of crucifixion. It seems he was the only disciple there. None of the Gospels dwell on the anguish, but they do speak of the prophecy he fulfilled in his death. There are lots of them, just a few. He was crucified with two others. Isaiah 53 12 tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. Psalm 22:16. a company of evil doers encircles me. Prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled in his life and death. I read Jesus fulfilled at least 27 prophecies in just these 24 hours that ended with his death. At any point in time, God is doing a thousand things we can't see. The God who is before time and space intervenes in real time to bring his purposes to pass. The fulfillment of scripture should make us stand in awe of the God who is eternal and is working in ways we don't understand. Have you spent time thinking about what God is doing in your life? There could be things going on 
with a greater purpose than you can see because they are part of his greater plan. A sign was put over Jesus' head that declared to the world who he really was. He was the Jewish king who would one day rule the world. Written in Aramaic so the Jews would understand, in Latin so that the Romans would understand, and in the common language of Greek so that everyone else could understand as well. The message was for the world. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill a scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Even the dividing of his garments fulfilled scripture. The sovereign hand of God was behind the scenes controlling seemingly minor details. The soldiers saw nothing to gain from Jesus other than an item of clothing and cruel entertainment. Jesus bore the curse of nakedness for us so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And as we have seen before, John put people side by side in the narrative so that we would compare them. We read of the four soldiers who were indifferent and cold, and then of the four women who were there weeping. These four women, lovers of the Lord and followers of him, were there at the foot of the cross, no matter how great the price, no matter how deep the pain. And in these Jesus' last minutes, he was thinking of his mother and her needs. Mary had four other sons who could have taken care of her, but they were not yet believers. That didn't happen until after the resurrection. But John could understand Mary's sorrow and extend God-given comfort. Again, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 69, 8. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of, of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and had held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus knew all was completed. What was finished? His work of redemption. Again, prophecy fulfilled with him saying, I thirst. And it's ironic they used a hyssop branch to moisten his mouth. The Jews had used hyssop to sprinkle blood on their doorposts at Passover. The blood of animal sacrifices could only cover sin. But the blood of the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. He was the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. He gave up. He delivered his spirit. 
No one took it from him. It was finished. The race was run and completed. The enemy was defeated. Jesus had the power to lay down his life or take it up, but he became obedient to death. When our time comes, we have no choice. But Jesus did, and he chose to die. Our faith is based on what Jesus has finished. It's interesting if you compare all four Gospels, you will find seven things Jesus said while on the cross. You see this number seven again. John only gives us three of them. The first three relate to the needs of others. First to those who crucified him, recorded in Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He prayed for those who caused his suffering. Second, to the believing criminal next to him. Both initially cursed him, but as time elapsed, one had a change of heart. Luke 23, 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, we see Jesus' concern for others. The third involved his mother. John 19, 26 and 27. Here's your son, here's your mother. The law required the firstborn son to take care of the parents. And Jesus obeyed and honored the law of God, even while suffering in his death. Fourth, he turned to his relationship with his father. Mark 15, 34. Why have you forsaken me? It is quoted from Psalm 22. He was spiritually separated from the father. When the sin of the world was put on Jesus, for the first time, there was separation between father and son. He suffered the pain and separation we deserve. He who knew no sin suffered for us. We cannot even begin to imagine what the wrath of God was like. Fifth, about his body. John 19, 28, I thirst. Psalm 69, 21b says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. He lived as a man and suffered as a man in order that he could identify with suffering humanity. From this statement, we observe Jesus suffered the full physical effect of crucifixion. There was no easing up, for the weight of our sin was placed on him. Sixth, John 19.30, it is finished. Not only is sin taken away, but we moved as far as the east is to the west. It's finished, done, signed, and sealed because of the blood of Christ. He completed the Old Testament prophecies foreshadowing his death. It was a cry of victory. He was able to be the perfect spotless sacrifice. He achieved victory over the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, and his own suffering was finished. And seventh um, comment from the cross, Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 31, 5. He finished victoriously. Now back to John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Jews came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. 
And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knew and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The Jews wanted to get the bodies down before sunset. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body must not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. And you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The Jewish rulers didn't want to defile the land. How ironic. They can kill an innocent man and yet worry about following the letter of the law. They were straining a gnat while swallowing a camel, as Jesus had accused the scribes and Pharisees earlier. Soldiers would break the legs of men still alive to hasten their death, but they came to Jesus and he was already dead. This fulfills the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb, unblemished, without spot, and without broken bones. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Even in his burial, God was in control. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had been quiet about their beliefs, came forward to take his body. Usually, an executed criminal's body in the Roman Empire was dumped in a trench for wild animals to scavenge. But Joseph intervened. Well, we should we say God did. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a stone tomb with myrrh and spices, just as another Joseph, 33 years earlier, had taken the same body, wrapped him in swaddling linen cloth, and placed him in a stone manger, and watched as he was presented with myrrh. The disciples had once argued about who loved Jesus the most, but it was two secret Jewish disciples that arranged his burial. He was put in Joseph's tomb, which fulfills Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with a rich man in his death. The fall of the first Adam took place in a garden. Now Jesus is buried in a garden. Though we know the end of the story, he's not going to stay there. Why does Jesus have to be put in a tomb? 
so that the world would see an empty tomb. Now there's a time gap between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of 20. From Friday night to Sunday morning, there was a period of rest. Everything was paused. The Gospels do not sensationalize the physical suffering. This kind of death was designed to be as brutal as men could devise. Why isn't there more emphasis on the pain he endured? The physical suffering was but, a, was but a small part of what he endured. The great suffering was spiritual. He became sin for us. He suffered wrath. We cannot fathom the horror of God's wrath. God has graciously kept us from understanding what would only horrify us. God turned out the lights for three hours possibly so no one would see the spiritual suffering he endured. As God only allowed Moses to see a glimpse of his glory so that he would not die, would men have survived if they had beheld the wrath of God being poured out in full measure on the sun? The number seven is especially prominent in scripture, appearing over 700 times. From the seven days of creation to the many sevens in Revelation, the number seven often implies completion. Genesis starts off with the six days of creation. God rested on the seventh. Com creation was complete. We saw in John, Jesus gave seven I am statements. They describe the perfection of who he is. We saw the seven miracles or signs. They were just a few of the many he did but they describe who he is and what he came to do. We saw the seven indictments by the Jews against Jesus. On the cross, the seven sayings of Jesus, and then his work was complete. How many times are we told that we forgive someone? Seventy times seven. And it doesn't mean a little 490 times, but to forgive completely. And this is just barely touching on the sevens in the Bible. Well, feasts are mentioned many times in John. The word feast is used 21 times in John. Passover is mentioned another six times. And the book seems to be organized around the Sabbath and the God-appointed feasts. Each feast reminds us Jesus is the completeness of God's plan for redemption. He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and especially the festivals of God's people. In Leviticus 23, God appointed feasts for the Israelites to celebrate every year. God wove the great work of redemption into the very calendar of Israel. And the feasts were arranged in a way to remind the Jewish people of God and his ways, but also to point to a Savior, the promised one, Jesus. And, of course, there are seven feasts. The first one is Passover, Leviticus 23.5. Jesus was crucified at Passover. He was the perfect, sinless Passover lamb. The first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from Egyptian slavery. So the death of Jesus marks our release from the slavery of sin. He is the fulfillment of the Passover feast. The second appointed feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Leviticus 23, 6. 
It was celebrated starting the day after Passover. Leaven in the Bible often resents sin, represents sin and decay in the Bible. Jesus was the bread from heaven without sin. His body was in the grave on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but he did not face the effects of sin and decay. This feast points to Jesus' sinless life. The third appointed feast was first fruits, Leviticus 23.10. The feast took place during the week-long Passover celebration on the day after the Sabbath. The feast of first fruits marked thanksgiving to God for the first of the barley harvest, trusting God to provide the rest of the harvest. Well, what happened on the day of the first fruits celebration in the year Jesus died? He was resurrected. He was the first fruit from the dead. The fourth feast was the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, Leviticus 23:16. It was a festival of joy and thanksgiving, celebrating the completion of the wheat harvest, and it took place 50 days after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus had promised to send another comforter, and at the first Pentecost, after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit came upon believers who met to pray, and then on the crowd with 3,000 believing. Overnight, the Christian movement increased from a house church to a megachurch, and this pointed to the great harvest of souls and the gift of the Holy Spirit for both Jew and Gentile, who would be brought into the kingdom of God during the church age. So these first four of the seven feasts occurred during the springtime, and they have all been fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. The three final feasts occurred during the fall, all within a short 15-day period. Now, interestingly, many Bible scholars believe these fall feasts have not yet been fulfilled by Jesus, but will be in connection with his second coming. The fifth feast is the Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23:24, And God commanded his people, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets. At this feast, a trumpet sounded to call people to repentance and prepare them for God's great judgment. Many believe this feast points to the rapture of the church when Messiah will appear in the heavens as he comes for his bride, the church. And the rapture is associated in scripture with the blowing of a loud trumpet. The sixth festival, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 23, 27. Many believe this prophetically points to the second coming of Jesus when atonement is fully realized and the Jewish remnant recognizes Jesus as Messiah. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will repent of their sins and receive him as their Messiah. The seventh feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, Leviticus 23:34. Many scholars believe this feast points to the Lord's promise. He will again tabernacle with his people when he returns to reign over all the world. Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, and dwelt among his people. But one day will live with his people for all eternity in the new heavens and a new earth. 
Isn't it astounding how the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus and is fulfilled in him? One last thought to leave you with. Sometimes we hear the term, that is my cross to bear. It has the general meaning of a responsibility or an unpleasant situation which you must live with because you can't change it. Jesus said in Luke 9:23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus was not referring to just general trials in life. We all have trials and afflictions that are hard to bear, even with God's help. So what does it mean to take up one's cross? A condemned man was forced to carry the crossbeam to his execution. This showed that although he had rebelled against authority, he was now so completely conquered, his last act in life would be to carry the instrument of his demise to the place of his death. It was complete and utter submission. A call to bear one's Christ as part of following Jesus is a call to be as submitted to Christ as the condemned criminal was to death. When Jesus called for self-denial and cross-bearing, he claimed authority. It means giving him allegiance down to the very depths of our being. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, well, the disciples had dreamed of the day Jesus would be king and they would get to sit in a place of honor. Jesus told them they must forsake personal ambitions and desires. Denying self is to live for his sake and not our own. That's easier said than done, right? Why do we have to deny ourselves? Because we cannot serve two masters. It is all or nothing. Take up his cross daily. We have a choice to make. Jesus won't force us to pick up a cross and follow him, but he invites us. It means we let go of our own desires, because often our desires keep us from what God has for us. Each day we must make the decision to follow Jesus. There will be days we want to do our own thing, follow our own desires, fall back into old habits and sin. When we have those days, we confess, we repent, and again make the choice to follow. It's a daily sacrifice to live for what God says is best rather than for what we are feeling. And the good news is we never have to bear the cross alone. He will never leave us or forsake us. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, It is the Lord who goes before you, he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. It will cost you to follow Jesus, but it will cost you more not to follow him. Are you willing to take up your cross? If faced with a choice, Jesus or the comforts of life, which will you choose? To those who are listening online, um, you can... Google uh, Ray Bolts, B-O-L-T-Z, Watch the Lamb. And there's a video that I will show in lecture. At the start of the video, we will see Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to help Jesus carry his cross. One moment he was living his life and minding his own business. 
and the next moment he was following Jesus carrying his cross. May we marvel at how perfectly Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Let us feel the weight of our sins and pause for a moment and lament. The world is not how it should be. May we take this week to meditate on the seriousness of our sin that put Jesus on the cross. May we think about him taking on the wrath of God. Next week we'll talk about the resurrection, but let us not skip too quickly over the significance of the cross.